pastoral letters. These are letters that Paul wrote to both Timothy and Titus. And uh, don't argue with me whether Paul wrote them or not. We can have a debate about that later. But uh, for our purposes today, Paul wrote them. All right? That's good enough for us. And uh, we'll talk about what Paul said to Timothy and to Titus as we go through here. Uh, We're going to be looking today at 1 Timothy chapter 3, so you can follow along in your Bibles if you'd like. Uh, We'll be looking at these 13 verses that just were read to us. And um, here's the, the questions that I'm going to use to frame our topic, our discussion today. Um, first of all, what does God-ordained leadership look like? Second of all, do you struggle to trust leaders, even Christian leaders like me? How should we follow it, that is Christian leadership, leadership in general? And what do we do if it fails? What do we do when things break down especially in the church. So those are our guiding questions as we are working our way through this, uh, this subject matter today. Um, anybody struggle with trusting leadership? Anybody struggle with trusting Christian leaders in particular? Um, I think if you just trust me or any Christian leader, you're not alone. According to some research conducted by George Barna, about one quarter of Americans either distrust or simply find pastors today to be irrelevant. One quarter. One quarter. And it's kind of one-third of all individuals that really don't see uh, pastors or Christian leaders as being all that essential to their life. That's kind of a, a sad statement, isn't it? But I think we live in an age when our culture and even our Families and friends kind of caution us to be extra wary of leaders. The news captures those high-profile situations, doesn't it? We all know the downfall of Bill Hybels. We all know the downfall of James McDonald, or maybe you don't know some of these, but uh, I could go on and on, couldn't I? I mean, there are just stories after stories after stories of Christian leaders who have ascended to the pinnacle of leadership within their denomination, their churches, whatever it is, only to have some kind of a, a situation in their life. Sometimes it's moral, sometimes it's just a personal conflict. We, we just never know, right? Only to have that be the thing that kind of gets ripped out from underneath their credibility and, and tears them down. It cautions us, it, it forces us to hold any concept of leadership a little bit more loosely, a little bit more suspicious of leaders in general. How do we affiliate and who do we affiliate with, um, including those we might call pastor? How closely, how much can I trust them and what does that really look like? And it causes us to have a certain kind of relationship with the church. There's good reason. There's good reason to be cautious especially if you have been hurt. It's a tragic thing when church leaders prey on the vulnerable, either for financial gain or for, more horrifically, their own personal immoral pleasures. We know it happens, and I'm guessing that it's happened to some of you. It probably causes you to never want to trust anybody ever again. If that is you this morning, as we unpack this subject matter, I just want to offer a deep 
heartfelt apology. On behalf of the universal church and on behalf of Jesus Christ. Because that is not what God intended for you. It's not what he intended for your experience with the church. I have been and I will continue to be praying for you to find healing and restoration. Restoration of hope that the church and its leaders are indeed representatives of Jesus Christ in the world. To be sure, they, we, I, are not God. Nor are we ever to be confused with Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 We are human, but we have no excuse for leading you or anyone else astray, much less for hurting or abusing anyone on their spiritual journey. The struggle is not new. The early church was blowing up. You can uh, imagine that it must have been a pretty wild ride in the early church, amen? People were hearing the message of Jesus Christ. They were responding, forming new communities to become disciples of the way. It was an exciting time, a crazy time, at least for those who like to control things. Anybody here like to control some stuff? I hold my hand up higher than all of you, all right? Just so you know, that's, that tends to be me. Um, I can imagine it was exciting and crazy for the likes of uh, maybe Peter, Thomas, Philip, Andrew, James, the brother of Jesus. Those are just a few, right? I can imagine that they were struggling to keep up with this massive growth and the expansion of the church that was happening all over. And, and then you throw in the mix Paul and Barnabas and Silas, and they're preaching out to the Gentiles, and uh, they're all over Southern Asia, and they're all over even into Europe. And it's like, how on earth do you manage this phenomenal growth of the early church, much less, much less like teach the individuals to follow sort of a consistent doctrine, to follow something that would be consistent with what Paul and Peter and others had experienced from Jesus Christ himself. You know, it was kind of interesting because in the earliest of the early church, they really didn't think a lot about the structure of the church because they all thought that Jesus was coming back within a couple years. Like he said, I'm going to come back. And so there wasn't really a need for church structure. It was just, just introduce the gospel, share the gospel, people come to know Jesus, and he'll come back and take care of it all. Can you imagine the free-for-all that was going on in the churches? Add to this that the new teaching was getting mixed into people's existing beliefs about God about the various gods that they served and the systems that governed their daily lives, the cultural norms, the overarching social structures. Think about men and women and, and the social structures of the day. In my book, it was a recipe for failure right from the beginning. Anybody see some of the seeds of failure? Anybody ever made a recipe and forgotten an ingredient? How many have done that, right? Anybody ever made a recipe and actually put too much of something into it? Yeah, all right, guilty there too, right? What comes out is barely edible, right? Barely edible. And I think that there were countless expressions of the early church that fit this description. They were barely recognizable. Too much of some stuff, not enough of others. Even whole new ingredients that were being added and the flavor of the early church varied significantly. 
but for God. But for God and those entrusted to care for this fledgling and growing movement. At first, it was the apostles. The apostles were entrusted to teach and to train and to share this good news of the gospel. That was that would have been easy. If Jesus had just come back within a couple of years, the apostles could have managed it all and it would have been great. We would have been, it would have been fine, right? The apostles. But the apostles began to pass on and realize that Jesus was tarrying a little bit longer. He was waiting just a little bit longer than they wanted him to. And so they had to start deputizing other people and anointing and praying and fasting for other leaders and So then it was not just the apostles, but it was those that the apostles anointed. And then it was for those who were anointed after that. And um, on and on and on it went. Small groups, churches sprang up in houses and people of all ages and genders began to lead this movement of the early church. It was a wild, wild time. And who did they deputize? Who did they find to lead the early church? You know, it wasn't just the people that were the smartest. In fact, as we read the pages of Scripture, it really doesn't emphasize that you had to have a ton of intellect to lead the church. Because you know what mattered more is character. Character and integrity and a commitment to Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul would even put himself down. He was the most educated of all the Pharisees. And he would write in his letters, like, that means nothing. None of what I learned means anything. It was only Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was the message. And if I could get on board with that message, and a few other things we're gonna, you've heard read about here, which were all related to my character my integrity, my love of Jesus and the way I lived my life and, and how I handled things. If I could get on board with that, then, then I might be able to lead the church. I might be identified for that high honor. Well, this is the context. That, that that I've just described is the context. Paul was writing to Timothy to help him manage this new and growing church in Ephesus. The community was known for its temple worship of Artemis, for temple prostitution, for rampant infidelity in marriages, for bad behavior including fighting and drunkenness and selfishness, lack of discipline and a willingness to follow just about any teaching that served their purposes. How about getting called to that environment? And not just getting called to that environment, but as a young man who was entrusted with the thought that he would go in and he would... uh, Correct and train and rebuke those who were older than him? Those who were younger? Like This was the charge that Timothy had from Paul. Fun task, right? Anybody want to sign up for that task? Eric, good. Talk to me afterwards, buddy. We're on it, all right? Paul gives Timothy and actually repeats several of these ideas in the beginning of Titus, Titus chapter 1. He gives them some very practical advice. He says, find people of good character, people of integrity, people who are living at home in ways that exemplify their character and their integrity. Don't be too quick to put people into leadership just simply because they express some desire to lead. He says in verse 1 of of Timothy chapter 3 there, he says, it's a noble task that you aspire to. But just because you aspire to it doesn't mean that you're going to be a good leader. 
So there's a process that we need to go to evaluate. We need to uh, kind of assess who you are and your character and your integrity, all the different things that go into that. Because while noble, a noble desire, it can also backfire. And that is one of the reasons we see so many tragic endings in the church and with leaders. They simply weren't ready. And if they were, they got enticed or pulled away. It says, especially give time for those that convert to be trained, equipped, and led into a deeper faith and commitment so that they are not enticed and pulled away and somehow upon, bring upon themselves and the church the, the abuse that we hear leveled against so many Christians today. Who are these people that Paul is talking about to Timothy? We hear the, the title overseer. Overseer would, for you would be like a, a reference to a bishop, although in that particular time when Paul's writing, there really wasn't such a thing as a bishop. The, the closest thing would have been the apostles. They were kind of like the, the end-all, be-all. But over time, these titles began to emerge in the first century and the second century when the church realized that this thing wasn't kind of going the way they thought it was. It wasn't going to end quite so quickly. So they had to come up with some of these titles. And so overseer became a little bit more synonymous with what we would call as a bishop. And deacon, deacon came along because there were these ideas of of needing servants in the church, people to help take care of the the tasks of administration of the church. And you'll read in in other parts of Timothy and over in Titus, you'll read of the title of elder. Elder would be uh, both a bishop and a pastor, but not all, bishop, not all elders, not all pastors were bishops. All bishops were probably elders. Uh, that gets a little confusing, but you'll, you'll hear all of those titles, bishops, pastors, and deacons, uh, and those kind of emerged throughout the early part of the church. So what does a bishop do? Well, this, this title, bishop, here, you, you might hear Peter, if you, if you read First Peter chapter 2, you'll hear Uh, Peter say that Jesus Christ is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Jesus Christ is the shepherd and the bishop of your soul. That's kind of the idea that's going on here with this title of overseer. So those who aspire to be an overseer desire a noble task. The level, this level of leader, the overseer, the bishop, they saw the, the work of the church in those locations. They held things together. They made sure that the work of the church was being accomplished according to sound doctrine. So what is that doctrine? That doctrine that says that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He was killed on the cross, though He was innocent, and miraculously rose again, thereby defeating death and sin and all the powers of darkness. As long as everyone agreed on who Jesus was and why He came both to redeem the law and fulfill the prophets, ushering in a whole new kingdom and opening the way to salvation for all who believe, then the early church seemed somewhat satisfied. Amen? That's a good message. We just need to keep saying that message over and over and over. Amen? They added a couple of stipulations. You can read about those in Acts chapter 15. Uh, They didn't want you to be involved in sacrifices, right? And, And they wanted you to stay away from sexual immorality. But that was about it. Believe Jesus Christ, stay away from those things, and let the church grow. That's a good word. That's a good message. Sometimes it feels like we get a lot more complicated than that, doesn't it? And with maybe some good reason, we can talk about that. But um, the early church kept it pretty simple. That's a pretty good thing. 
The distinction between the various titles, as I said, they, they came along a little bit later uh, in the first century, into the second century. The role of bishop, pastor, deacon, they were much more clearly defined because the church recognized that they were in this for the long haul. So what's the difference? I said all pastors are considered elders. They're the ones that are set apart for the work in a local church. All bishops were considered elders as well, but you didn't necessarily automatically become a bishop. A bishop was kind of overseeing a certain area. Deacons came along, as I said, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, you'll see in Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 3, the apostles were spreading this message and they were teaching and doing all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, to spread the gospel, but they were trying to serve the poor at the same time, and it kind of came along like, we need some help doing this. And so they prayed and they fasted and they set apart certain people to administrate service to the poor. And they became deacons. Deacon literally becomes this idea of a servant of the church. So deacons were vital to the role of the church. In the Free Methodist Church, just incidentally, so you know, we have all of these titles, all of these roles that are available for people to serve. We have bishops. We actually added a title of superintendent. That was a, to support the bishops because the areas got a little too big. So we have bishops and superintendents. And then we have pastors of local churches. And then we also have deacons. Deacons are more in the local church, serving the local church. And we have all of those titles. We're following, to the best of our ability, the biblical model for, for the ways that the church can be administrated and, and cared for. But Paul says, all of them, every one of them, must keep hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. And you know that we just said it, right? What are the deep truths of faith? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come to earth to usher in a new kingdom, bringing salvation to all who believe. He came to make a way for those who were being overlooked and burdened and mistreated and downright discriminated against. He came to turn the power structures of the world, including the church, which had gotten caught up into the world's systems. He came to turn it all upside down and bring hope to the poor, the lonely, the downtrodden, the sick, the outcast, the abused. Jesus came for those that needed hope. That's what Jesus came for. In so doing, he became the standard for our discipleship and the model of leadership that we should follow. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2 that the dominant posture of Jesus' heart was humility. The dominant posture of Jesus' heart was humility. He was most certainly holy and blameless and temperate and upright, above reproach, self-controlled, hospitable, and on and on and on. He actually didn't have a wife or children, but he made clear to all who are listening that you and I are his sons and daughters. We are his family, which also sets the stage for how we should live with one another. Because you and all, you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? You ever hear that phrase? If we were to summarize this section of Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 3, I would summarize it with these five points. A Christian leader should... Be someone that you can trust with the highest of moral character. The word there would be trustworthy. Can you say trustworthy? trustworthy? A Christian leader should also be someone you don't wonder what's happening when you're not looking. The word there would be integrity. Can you say integrity? integrity. A Christian leader should be the same at home and with their family as they are in public. And be respected, loved, and lead well at home. It's not one word, but say these three words. Dedicated to family. 
A Christian leader should be respected in the eyes of the community. Can we say respectable? And then a Christian leader should be in service for the Lord Jesus Christ and not for themselves. Selfless or self-sacrificing. You can say selfless. Amen. Amen. That's what I think Paul is getting at with these character traits, this passage of scripture that he's writing to Timothy about. The measuring rod for who should lead, he says, is not good looks, thankfully. And it's not about output in terms of numbers and conversions and budgets and clothing and money and influence. The measuring rod for leadership is character, ethics, integrity, consistency. Notice also in this that age was not a factor. At the time of this writing, it does not appear Timothy was married, and I'm not sure there is evidence that he ever was. And Paul specifically urges him not to look down on anyone, not have anyone look down on him because he was young. Literally anyone can be called to serve the church in vocational full-time Christian ministry, and that includes I'm not sure if you've been considering it for a while. Maybe you have and maybe you're resisting. Maybe you're biding time. Maybe you're waiting for that perfect moment. But if you think the Lord might be calling you to ministry, full-time, working for the church in some way, not just in a general way, because we're all called to serve. That's the, we talked about that early on, the priesthood of all believers, right? We're all called to serve the church. But this is a specific call to full-time vocational Christian ministry. To help oversee the growth, maintain fidelity of Christian teaching. Come alongside the suffering and the broken. Administrate and lead the church as stewards of resources and services to the poor. To teach, to train, to equip, even rebuke and correct. If these are things that stir in you on a regular basis, please come and talk to me. I would love to enter into a process and a journey that you ultimately could be on to become a full-time worker in the church. This church here, we, we are geared to equipping and to sending, and we're learning more and more about that as we go along because there are many already on that journey and in that process. I want to come back to this idea that for those of you, again, reiterating that have been hurt by the church. Maybe you've just seen sort of the underbelly of the church. That part that nobody really ever wants to see, right? Maybe you're left cynical. Maybe you're underwhelmed by the message of the gospel. Please don't give up. Please don't give up hope. Pray for those in leadership that God will bring them to conviction. And I pray that you will find the message of the gospel more compelling than any human representation of it. God is so much bigger. And His Son Jesus Christ is so much more than any authority, human authority figure. He is literally the Savior of the world who came in flesh to know our pain, was rejected by the majority of mankind, yet died a gruesome death only to rise again. The miracle of all miracles, death could not hold him, the grave was not able to keep him. There is literally nothing that stands between you and Jesus Christ today. And no matter how leaders have hurt you or influenced you in the past, Jesus is literally there to pick up the pieces and work on restoration of hope. Paul confidently declares to the Philippians that he put no confidence in the flesh, but in in the living 
Son of God, Christ Jesus. May that become our story and confidence as well. I'm excited to stand before you today confidently declaring that the Free Methodist Church is a church that you can believe in. We are not perfect, but you can put some faith and confidence in this church. It is not following the patterns of the world. It is standing on truth. It is reaching the poor. It is promoting justice globally. It is offering hope to the hopeless. Its highest leaders are leading with character and integrity. And we are aware of our faults. And we're making provision to deal with them. Such as, for instance, in our recent elections, it was very obvious, painfully obvious, that there were no people of color on the slate to become bishop. And the church laments that. And is working even now to develop pipelines and new leadership structures and systems that will change that going forward. Sometimes the church moves a little bit too slow. Maybe I should say we move very deliberately. No, we just move slow sometimes, all right? Just fair enough. We move slowly. But generally, we move in the right direction. Amen? We will continue to adapt and we will continue to grow. I'd like to close my time this morning with answering a question that I received. And the question is this, what does it look like to submit to authority? What does that really look like, to submit to authority? Both mine as the pastor and also of the broader, in our case, Free Methodist Church, its leaders, its bishops, its superintendents. I want to summarize it as best I can in two primary points and then invite you for further dialogue because there's no way I can answer it completely this morning. But here's the the two points that I would point to for how do we submit, quote-unquote, to authority. First is in the area of doctrine. Submitting to the authority, the doctrine of the Free Methodist Church. We have a well-thought-out doctrine. That is what we believe and understand about God and salvation and Scripture and all the the various pieces of what make us who we are as Christians. We have a very well-thought-out doctrine doctrine with a profound understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, and how they are one and the same, how the Bible is the inspired word of God, what our purpose is, and how to access it all by faith. Submission to authority follows first with a recognition to submit to the authority of the church in regards to our doctrine and our theology. So that's first. That's the first point. What does it mean to submit to authority? If you have questions on any of that, I'd love to talk with you about that. And we can walk through point by point on each of those things and and what that really looks like. The second one is what I would term Christ-likeness. Here we're talking about the basics of morality and the conduct becoming of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you and I both know that can get into some gray area really quickly, doesn't it? But... For the most part, these are things that we generally want to have some level of agreement on. And when we don't, there should be room for accountability in regards to what the Bible teaches. Amen? So the church does not exist to legislate morality. Not so much. But the Bible does have a lot to say about it. And so when we submit to authority, we submit to looking at the Bible together and allowing the Bible to be our guide. Amen? Because what we care about is pursuing Christ-likeness. What we care about is becoming more holy, becoming more like Jesus Christ in the process. 
we understand and grow and, and learn the Word of God. So those are the two big categories. What does it mean to be under the authority and submission of Jesus Christ and the church and those who are entrusted to lead the church? Here's one thing that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you submit to anyone's authority blindly. So hear me on that. Don't submit to anyone's authority blindly. Without appropriate levels of questions and doubts and the ability to match what I say or the church says with what Scripture teaches. Acts chapter 17 verse 11 confidently declares that the Bereans whom Paul was reaching, the Bereans were of more noble character because whatever Paul said, they went back to the Scripture and said, this is what the Scripture says, this is what you say, how do they line up? And Paul commended them for that. So we don't submit to authority blindly. We search the Scriptures and we look at it. Our goal in this church and in the broader Free Methodist Church is Christ-likeness and holiness. Any authority, including myself, should be honoring that and we should all be striving for the same thing. And if it doesn't look like that, don't submit to it. Amen? If it does, surrender to it. Amen? I would love you to trust me, but only in so far as I am trustworthy. Use the measuring rod of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and other passages of Scripture to pray for me, to pray for the leaders in our church. Don't be afraid to ask the tough questions of me personally and of us and of us as a church. I can't guarantee, no, I can guarantee that none of us will be perfect. But I will strive, and so will all of us, to be blameless, above reproach, people of good character, full of integrity, good spouses and parents, and for me, a loving pastor to all of you. I think verse 13 is a very useful one for all of us leaders, whether you're in full-time vocational ministry or you're just a lay leader in the church. 1 Timothy 3.13 Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. We're going to take some time right now and I'd like to just have a few moments of silence. We're just going to see if the Holy Spirit has anything to say to us today. Could be that someone here today needs healing. The overriding feeling in your heart is one of anger or resentment, the inability to trust anyone, much less the church. Let today be the start of that journey of healing. You are precious in God's sight. And God wants to restore you to wholeness. So spend a few minutes this morning with God, exploring what he might be leading you to do in healing.